You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible, talk about it, record it, disseminate <laughs> it through the internet, and people listen. This is Still becoming trying to figure a... that last part out. No. <laughs> this is becoming a more complex uh, system every time you announce it. There's like more steps. <laughs> well, you know, it's good to be specific about things, right? <laughs> Occasionally. So, yeah, well... um, before we get into it, I uh, actually want to uh, have you uh, talk about what you did this morning. Oh my goodness, it's been a busy, busy morning. Uh, and Well, and that's the morning <laughs> we're recording. This would be last Friday for the people listening to the episode. This is true. So yeah, so we'll yeah, put that out there. Three days from now, what? Yeah, something like that. But uh, yeah, I was invited to go on with uh, Alicia Breeze, and she has um, a YouTube channel, Instagram channel, and, you know, Facebook, obviously, where she talks about narcissistic abuse and the problems with it, uh, you know, how we misidentify it, uh, how you heal from it, what God can bring out of it. And she asked me to be on her show. So we talked for quite a bit this morning. I got to share some of my story and talk about not only what I went through, because I, I kind of hate to just dwell on just like, oh, this is the big, ugly and shocking part of it. No, the really shocking part of, of it is that God actually brought me out of that and God delivered me from it. And he's still able to use somebody who was abused, somebody who uh, had a divorce. Oh, my goodness. Was a single mom. He can use somebody like this. And so Alicia just she brings all of these stories uh, every Friday. She's uh, I don't know about every Friday, but many Fridays. She has a guest on to share their story, to talk about their experiences, and she's really just trying to help educate the body on this issue because there's so much misinformation and so much bad information. So uh, if you want to hear the interview, you can see it on Instagram TV, on her um, Instagram uh, channel. It Just look for at It's Alicia Breeze, and that's Breeze like, you know, a, a gust of air, a wind, but here's the thing. She, she's like fire. Uh, everything with her is fire. She is high energy. Uh, she is on it. And so that was a lot of fun. And now I'm just feeling like, okay, I've got to bring it back down for faith and other oddities because I don't know <laughs> if we aren't that high energy, but you know, it's, it, it's fun to be with somebody who is occasionally, I think she'd wear me out, uh, probably in a good way, but she just, cause it just flows out of her. So yeah, she's, she's definitely definitely a more high energy podcast than we are. Uh, but that's a good thing. I mean, that's, we need we need we need people doing all kinds of things. Lots of voices, <laughs> lots of voices from different perspectives, different points of view. And it was just really, uh, you know, it, it's just good to, to sometimes, you know, not just to hear somebody else's story, but sometimes like for myself, it's good to kind of look back at my my story and go, wait a minute, that did happen to me. <laughs> well, and to be able and to be able to share it in a format that's that's going to be just helping people is right. is really good. So, uh, big thanks and shout out to Alicia for having you on. Uh, if you want to know more of Emily's story, go check out that episode. It it I listened to it this morning as it was live, and it it it's one of those stories that I'm 
familiar with, uh, you know, because I was. You were uh, there for a lot uh, of it. <laughs> through, through a lot of it. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, it's, it's good to hear that kind of thing again, uh, every now and again, just to review, you it's, know, how far things have come. It's and, been 20 uh, how years. How far removed we are from that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's been 20 so, years. So. Yeah. It's Anyhow. been a little while, but that, that being said, um, cause I just wanted to, to throw that out there and let people know that that's a, a, a great resource. If you do have, uh, friends who are in uh, relationships that, uh, you know, suffering from narcissistic abuse or anything like that, go check her out and, um, and, well, and follow her because she does provide resources for people struggling with that kind of thing. So, and because I have them here since we just got through recording like a few minutes ago, uh, I shared these on her show and I want to share them again. Uh, this is, uh, I'm holding up, if you're watching on YouTube, uh, a book by Jeff Crippen called Unholy Charade. If you are in church leadership, get this book, read this book. I'm, I'm not associated with him. I, I just, when you read this and there's truth in here that so many church leaders do not have. And then he's got uh, a cry for justice. And it says how the evil of domestic abuse hides in your church. And it does hide in our churches. And because we haven't been taught how to deal with it, we haven't educated ourselves, which is what Alicia is trying to do. Women who have been caught up in these relationships often don't have a safe place to turn. So I always, every chance I get to, I get to plug those books. They're so good. They're so informative. And I, I think they would just be, they would alter the way a lot of people and a lot of churches handle these situations in their body and it, in a good way. So anyway, now that I've got that out of the way. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, now let's just... Uh... I guess we should move on to what people are typically here for, um, <laughs> right? Which is which is Bible, which is Bible. Yes. So we're back in Second Samuel. We had left that behind for a short while and gone over a couple of Psalms. So there was a break in the story, but now we're going to pick up and we're going to pick up in chapter sixteen and we're going to start with um, verse fifteen. I think I told you. Yes, verse fifteen. So a little recap in case you've slept since the last time you listened. Um, I know I have. David has left Jerusalem at this point. Uh, he sent his priest and their sons back to Jerusalem. They tried to follow him out of the city with the ark. He said, no, you, you need to take him back. Just go, go do your thing in the city like you're supposed to. Ittai the Gittite and his people had joined with David. So now he's got a small working army. He's also got women and children that came along with Ittai the Gittite. Uh, the Gittite. That's not a tongue twister at all. Uh, Hushai has come along. And remember, we were told Hushai was David's friend. And David had said, no, you, you're going to be too much of a burden. You know, this is not where your gifting lies. You're a talker. I need you to go back. I need you to be in Absalom's court. I need you to work as basically an agent of influence, a, a double agent, so to speak. We also had Ziva. Ziva, who was um, the servant of Mephibosheth, he showed up. He's told David that Mephibosheth is going to um, support Absalom that uh, David can't rely on Mephibosheth. We don't know the rest of the story just yet, if, you know, if we're following along chronologically. And Shimei had cursed David. So that had been the major events leading up to where we are now. And I think the other two thing we should point out too is Shimei was from the house of Saul, and his accusation against David was that David had killed Saul and that he killed Saul's family. And of course, we know that's not true. But we don't know how much of this lie, these rumors, were believed by the public at large. And that's going to play into whether or not people actually 
accept Absalom as a new leader or whether they will reject him. Because a lot of this is going to come down to whether or not they think that Absalom's just a mini David, this, you know, David 2.0, or if he is his own person. And so this is where we're going to start getting into some of those big, um, big conflicts that are going on in Absalom's life between him and, and David. So now we get on to our story. In verse 15, it says, Now Absalom and all the men of Israel come to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. So, uh, so yeah. what I think is funny, and this has no real bearing on anything, I think it's funny that in the ESV it says, Now Absalom. And then in the JPS, it says, meanwhile. <laughs> and so meanwhile, I realize back it's a the tiny, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I realize it's a tiny uh, distinction, but it's just, it's really, I don't know why, it just kind of struck me as funny. Well, like, meanwhile. I mean, one of the problems with Hebrew verbs, since you bring it up, is trying to decide if they're consecutive. So like if everything just happens in this nice little orderly chronological event, or if it's happening concurrently or if it's happening after an extended period of time. And there's actually going to be a verse that we're going to get to, I believe it's in chapter 17, where that actually becomes an issue. Well, it's 17.1. So yeah, we're going to get there today. Where that, that thing that you just brought up becomes an issue with how do we translate this? Um, so See, I'm, I'm better at Bible study than I thought. You just had no clue. I mean, <laughs> you, you, you just have no idea how good you are. <laughs> So, yeah, but I mean, it's it's a real concern, and so this is the reason why you find these variations in translation, because uh, you know the point is is that it happened. Most of the time, it really doesn't matter what the sequence of events are or what the the real timeline is. It's just the fact that it did happen, and uh, only occasionally does it matter. And then it's like, well, why can't we be more specific? Why couldn't the Hebrew have just given you a point by point? You know, twelve oh three, David took a lunch break and at 1207 you know whatever so quick shower Uh. (laughs) right (laughs) but what this verse here is doing uh it is actually being very distinct because we have two names we have you know absalom obviously he's the leader he's the one who's caused all of this so he's important you've got all the people whoever they are this big faceless mass and then you have ahithophel and Ahithophel is with Absalom. Now, first off, we should note that, yes, he is called by name. So obviously he's significant. He's more significant than the other people who are with, him, with Absalom. Uh, but this word with, it's kind of unique in that it literally is just he's present. It doesn't mean that he's unified with. And so it's a little bit of a tip off to what's coming down the road. There, There's this a distinction in the Hebrew when you're with someone like, you know, I'm with you on this matter. I'm with you in battle. I'm with you in war. And this, okay, I'm just here. You know, I'm taking up space in your presence. And this is what this word means. You know, Ahithophel's just in Absalom's presence. He's taking up space. He's breathing the air. So little, little foreshadowing. And we should expect that from the writer of Samuel by this point, that he would be specific with the words where he can be specific and where it really does matter. So verse 16, and when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. Now, notice the writer points out Hushai is David's friend. He does not want you to forget that. This is the important element of Hushai and his presence. And 
This is a great contrast to Ahithophel. Hushai is David's friend. Ahithophel is just with Absalom. So this also causes us to ask a question. When Hushai says, long live the king, who is he talking about? You know, is he talking about David? Is he talking about Absalom? Is he talking about Mephibosheth? Because Mephibosheth is a possible contender, uh, a very unlikely one. But Ziva seemed to think that possibly Mephibosheth thought he could be. And we're going to see that this ambiguity is just part of the flavor of what Hushai has to say. He is excellent at well, double I, talk. I think, it's, I, say, I think it's Absalom. You kind of have him questioning that as well. I think that's kind of, I think there's, you can read too intense into his question there where he says, is this your loyalty to your friend? Mm-hmm. Saying, are you saying long live that king or this king? But he's also saying, oh, you're so loyal to your friend that you just don't even go with him when, he's, when his life's in danger. Exactly. You know, I think there's definitely, I think there's definitely a double meaning to the way his phrasing is going on there. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and that's the way Hushai talks. It's like, I'm going to say something, but you're going to read into it what you want to read into it. Uh, he will outright lie a couple of times in here, but most of the time, it's just so ambiguous what he says. How you interpret it is going to be what you want to see, what you want to hear. And mm. so, um, you know, it's kind of fun for me because our dad was a master at this. Um, you know, yep. you, <laughs> you'd tell him your plans and he would say, well, I hope that works out for the best, which usually meant he was not a fan. Uh, he just actually wasn't going to come right out and say it. but. Yeah, Absalom's like, okay, I've got, to, I've got to press in deeper. I've got to figure out what your motives are here. So he does. He asks those questions. Is this the loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? So we know immediately Absalom knows that Hushai is David's friend. And he is suspicious, obviously. But this causes me to wonder about the nature of Ahithophel and Absalom's relationship because Ahithophel was still with David when Absalom sent for him, and yet he felt secure and certain enough to send for Ahithophel to join him in his revolt against David. So I think, and this is just my speculation, I think they were plotting long before Absalom kicked off his revolt. I I think they were already in cahoots long before Absalom made any kind of official move. Mm -hmm. Again, that's me reading into the text. I don't want anyone to say, okay, where do I find that chapter and verse? You're not. That, that's Emily's head, and so take it for what it's worth. Now, why was Absalom suspicious of Hushai? Uh, is it because the friendship is so well known, or was the fact that um, you know, Hushai just wasn't on board bet- before this revolt? Is, is it the timing that's suspicious? So. The, the word that Absalom uses for friend is not the same word we have in chapter 15. Remember in chapter 15, Hushai was described as David's friend by the writer of Samuel. Uh, this, this word that Absalom uses is a more common term for friend. For friend. It can mean neighbor or even just another person. It, it, it doesn't have to have any kind of endearing quality to it. it it's just somebody you know. Where in chapter 15, definitely the, um, the word was for a friend who was well-known, but it also may have, and we discussed this on an episode where we did, went over those verses, 
it may have the quality of an official position. And the thing is, the reason why that's important here is what Absalom uses to describe Hushai doesn't carry that, that, that kind of meaning. There's, there's no well, hint. It, if it's kind of a general term for like someone you know or possibly neighbor, I mean, could it be one of those things where we already see that Absalom's kind of uh, putting things of the Torah to the side, and we talked about possibly how he was uh, you know, kind of skeptical of, of doing things according to the Torah or thinking that people were mm-hmm. practicing Torah wrong or that maybe he was abandoning the, mm-hmm. the core of the faith because of David's, you know, betrayals and things like that. So it's kind of like, I wonder if maybe it's one of those things where, you know, he would have known, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, is, is this how you love your, you know? Oh, that's a really good point. The, so I, I wonder if it's kind of a mocking tone to uh, mm. his his religiosity or perceived religiosity. Now I'm going to have to, because I want to go back and look that up, because that is that's a good point, because if it's the same word in, you know, where it was talking about loving your neighbor, that it could carry that implication. I could see that, definitely. Um, but off the top of my head, I don't have that in my notes, and I take to take time to look it up. But Yeah, and that's, and that's again, that's just a question. I'm yeah. I'm well, curious about that. And, and the, the other thing we too we need to keep in mind is the two words, the one used in um, 15, um, <clears throat> Rhea and Rhea, uh, in 16, you, you can hear how close they are. There's, there's literally one letter difference. And so this is a really good place to talk about, was this intentional? Uh, was this difference in wording part of the original manuscript? Uh, did the, did the um, writer Samuel intend to do these as two separate words, two distinct words? Or was it just, you know, an absent-minded scribe somewhere didn't write down the exact word the author used to use the more common phrase. Um, if, if it was the writer Samuel, then he's possibly trying to give us some insight into Absalom's per- perceptions and help us understand that Absalom's perceptions were just a little off, that you know, David and Hushai were much closer than what he was giving them credit for. Now, we know that the writer Samuel's sophisticated enough to make those little distinctions and to use those little subtleties to kind of tip the reader off. But are we reaching too far in putting so much emphasis on one letter difference? And I, I, I don't know. Um, because on one hand, you know, Absalom was the guy who perceived what was happening. He was the guy who understood what was going on with Tamar. She didn't even have to explain herself. She, he sees her. He knows who attacked her. He knows what happens. And he, he, he knows how to address her situation for her good. He, he's able to perceive what needs to be done in response to Amnon's violence against her. And he knew how to play David, how to get David to send Amnon to the feast so that Amnon could be killed. He knew how to play Joab. Remember, he set Joab's field on fire so that Joab would actually make sure that Absalom got to see his father after being sent into exile. And so if the writer of Samuel is making a point with his word, he is saying, um, sorry, uh, my husband's like sending me links to stuff on Marketplace. 
But if he's making a point with um, something on this word, uh, he, he's asking us to um, realize that Absalom's perceptions are starting to unravel. He's not necessarily the guy that we first met. He's not the one who is capable of keeping his mouth shut for two years. He, he's now starting to ask other people's opinions. He's starting to rely on other people's ideas. And he's not just acting and doing what he believes is right. He's actually reaching out to the wrong sources. And his, his whole approach to everything is shifting because he's losing himself in this. And when he, you know, even us, when we start to lose ourselves, our perception of reality starts to come unwound. And so um, there, there is that question. I don't know if the writer of Samuel intended that. However, what I do know is this is how the text was preserved. And because the text was preserved this way, whether it was a scribal error or not, that it actually does open up this line of questioning about the text that would not be there if the word had been consistent in chapter 15 and chapter 16. And I think that's the important part. It's how God chose to preserve it for us so that we can receive it this way so that it might provoke those kinds of questions. So. Nice little rabbit trail from a single letter. How do you like that? <laughs> hey, works for me. How do you know you're a Bible nerd? There you go. <laughs> Verse 18. And Hushai said to Absalom, Know for whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. Verse 19. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. So this, this whole speech is hilarious. Uh, in verse 18, Hushai says absolutely nothing that answers Absalom's question. I mean, it, it, there's, there's no real response to what Absalom wants to know. Instead, he, he just, he gives this list of conditions, and these conditions can be interpreted in a no, number of ways because he never identifies who he's supposed to be loyal to. So he lets Absalom read into these conditions what he wants because he knows Absalom has this problem with vanity. That's already been hinted at. You know, he cuts his hair every year. He has a ceremony. He does it in public because he wants people to see, you know, how long and flowing and beautiful his hair is. Whom God has chosen. Well, who has God chosen? Absalom thinks, hey, God's chosen me. I've got Jerusalem. Dad's out in the wilderness. God has to have chosen me. Uh, the people and all of Israel have chosen him because they let him come into Jerusalem. They didn't rise up to defend David. They didn't say, not on my watch. They said, come on in. We'll let you be here. Of course, this is where you belong. And because in um, his, his eyes, it's true, he can accept Hushai's words as being about him. Now, in verse 17, Hushai presents us, it presents us as if it's only logical that he transfer his allegiance to Absalom. Why? Because he's David's son. So mm -hmm. this is, you know, okay, this would be true if we're talking about Absalom being the next successor to David, the one who's going to inherit the throne. Then, yes, that would be 
what should happen. And so in this way, Hushai's not being shown as disloyal to David, which was, uh, you know, treason. And Absalom could have ordered that Hushai be killed. But he's also not being disloyal to Absalom, again, which would be treason in another perspective for which Hushai can be, can be um, killed. And this is mm. the closest we get to a straight up lie in this speech, which is he will serve Absalom like he serves David. And it, the, the, the speech is, has just enough to convince Absalom that Hushai is sincere and to keep him alive. And, and that's what Hushai is doing. I mean, he walks a very fine line. He, he only lies when it's absolutely necessary. And he lets Absalom fill in the blanks for everything else, which Absalom does. And we're going to see a little bit later why Hushai is so good at using psychological warfare, psychological tactics to get Absalom to um, do what Hushai thinks is correct. So verse 20, then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel, what shall we do? So uh, this is the first time that we have it explicitly, explicitly spelled out. Absalom is asking other people to counsel him. And you know, like I said, before this, he's been somebody who keeps his own counsel. He's been someone who doesn't reach for outside, um, outside help or input. So now he's relying on others, specifically Ahithophel. And Ahithophel, he's ruthless. You know, and I see anger in his advice, uh, even vengeance in his advice, which is the main reason why I do think that he was Bathsheba's grandfather. There is some underlying rage that that fuels Ahithophel's counsel to Absalom because um you know in his mind this is would be strict keeping of the Torah and what do I mean by that because um what he's getting ready to suggest is just awful in the Torah you have an eye for an eye and, you know, we know that that's supposed to be limiting. If someone gouges your eye out, you can only take compensation for the eye. You can't go and slaughter the whole village of the guy who, who did this. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you don't get to kill everybody's kids, grandkids, children, what have you, in order to, to avenge your wrong. So if Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather and his granddaughter was raped by the king, then Turnabout is fair play, and I'm not saying this is right. I'm just saying this is how he could have reasoned it. Again, out of Emily's mind, not in Scripture, but what would be more fitting than for the women that were under David's care, specifically his concubines, to also be raped? So I, I think I, I, I can see how he would use this as a reasoning point because he's put, put out there as a very wise person. Matter of fact, at the end of the chapter, it specifically says that to consult Ahithophel was like consulting the word of God. He, he's not a nobody. He understands things at a very high level. David and Absalom both esteem his counsel. There's got to be something going on with this guy that is right, or at least was right for a season, and a long enough season that he gained a level of credibility that few other people in the Bible do when it comes to counsel. Mm-hmm. So. Anyway, 
I, you know, just, I think there's just something to consider and think about. I, I may be off. And if you've got, you know, anybody's got some better solutions or, you know, they totally disagree, let us know. I mean, I, I'm okay with speculating about some of this stuff as long as we recognize that it is speculation. And so I, I don't think there's anything wrong with questioning how do, how do real people operate within real wo- world scenarios. And when we're, right. we're talking about this kind of violence against a family member. I think we should expect some kind of almost, um, you know, explosive retaliation, you know, that the, the, the rage would be that deep. So I keep, I've been talking all morning. I'm like, my throat is, <laughs> I'll be done talking by the time we get done with this episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I don't have much to contribute or I'd take a, I take it for a little bit. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this is kind of straightforward. We'll we'll get into some more stuff. I'm sure you're going to pick up on here in a little bit. Uh, verse 21. Ahithophel says to Absalom, "Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep to keep the house, and all of Israel will hear you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened." So, the the writer of Samuel has already established what this means to be a stench to someone. Um, that was the word that was u- that we used back with Tamar when Amnon attacked Tamar, uh, that he would be a stench, uh, which linked us back to Dana. Sorry, go ahead. Right. Well, yeah, I was, I was wondering if that was kind of a link back to Dina and with, you know, with the, the sons of, uh, oh, which Jacob? two sons was it? Uh, Simon sons and Levy. of Jacob. Yeah, Simon Levy saying, uh, "Hey, this is not something we do in Israel." Right. Well, and but the, the, and, the... <laughs> is, it, is it kind of a nod? Is it kind of a nod by the writer to to say that, "Hey, uh, we realize this happened, but it's not the kind of thing that's supposed to happen." It, it's yeah, because what it is, it's a break with David, and David being the representation of what Israel was. And so the fact that Absalom would completely do something that would would sever that relationship with his father would make him, at least according to Ahithophel, more appealing to the masses in general. And that's what he's trying to do, because if he can get the masses to support Absalom, get David out, then there's more of a possibility of concluding whatever grand scheme he has for the throne. And there's going to be some questions about what his plan is for, you know, either Absalom as king of Israel or somebody else as king of Israel as we move forward. But then the other thing, too, that we need to remember is that the writer Samuel has established what it means for one man to take another man's wife. And remember, we've talked about this on a previous episode. A concubine was a wife. A lot of people don't understand this. They think that there's some kind of prostitute, some kind of mistress. They're a wife. What they don't have is that ketuvah, that that marriage contract that ensures that if they get divorced, they will have some kind of financial um, compensation that will keep them from being destitute. So they are in a lesser position in that they're kind of stuck with their husbands no matter what, uh, whereas a full-fledged wife would have some kind of out. She would have the ability to remove herself from a difficult situation. And earlier on in 2 Samuel, we had Abner who had taken one of Saul's wives. Now Saul was dead at the time, but Ishbosheth, one of Saul's sons, this is why he 
he fell out of line with Abner, why there uh, was a problem with Abner and wanted, you know, began to doubt Abner's loyalty and began to wonder if maybe Abner was going to try to take the throne from him, which led to some major problems. So this idea of sleeping with another man's wife, essentially, and we've said this before, if a man can take another man's place in the bedroom, then he can take his place in other ways. And so this is Absalom's basically a public declaration of I'm just as much of a man as my father, even more so I have thoroughly replaced him in every aspect, both with his wives and in the kingdom. So this is the this is not just Absalom saying, hey, you know, the, my father's wives are so hot, I want to be with them. He's making a political statement. And at this point in time, sex was very much a political arrangement. It was not the love romantic thing that we talk about today. Were there romantic and loving relationships? Yes. But that was not the standard, and it certainly wasn't the status quo. Well, and especially not for royalty. Oh, no. That's a totally different thing. Oh, well, think of the marriages today um, in in the British monarchy and the the stink that's going on with the the family i I try not to well i mean (laughs) it's just a really good example that even today royalty aren't really wanted to marry you know nobody really wants them to marry who they want to marry as far as like for political gains you know i think the masses kind of cheer them on and go oh yay they married for love but all the political movers and shakers are going, no, this is a disaster. So, I mean, it's still, it's still part of our culture if we really want to think about it. But unfortunately, we, we typically don't. Now, I do want to point out that this is the third time. And I've been looking for some writing on this particular topic because it, it, it fascinates me. This is the third time that David has left women behind to be claimed by other men. Uh, the first one was Michael when um, he fled from Saul mm-hmm. and, you know, Saul married her off to someone else. The second time was at Ziklag. He went to go fight and Ahianon and Abigail were taken by the Amalekites. Mm-hmm. And now we have this third time with the 10 concubines and Absalom. So this is an ongoing pattern for David. Uh, you know, <laughs> There's just no way to avoid the fact that David was a lousy husband. And it wasn't just the Bathsheba incident. I mean, being married to this man was dangerous. Uh, None of the women really fared well when it came to their dealings with David. Uh, That includes his wives, his friend's wife, his daughter. Uh, The only women who kind of come out ahead a little bit are the women who are considered to be wise women. These are the women who who were just as political and just as savvy as him. Of course, Abigail um, was probably the primary example. But I don't think this should really surprise us because almost every Bible hero were they're horrible fathers and, and husbands. I mean, we got Abraham who pimps out Sarah a couple times. We got Jacob and the fact that he can't work through the, the Rachel, Leah, and the, the his concubine situation there, Moses. I mean, good grief! His wife calls uh, called him a bloody husband, and then we got David. I mean, they all have problems with their home lives, and 
I, I think the, the reason for this is because ultimately we're supposed to realize that, yes, women, our desire is for our husbands. And, you know, so many Bible commentators say, oh, that means that women want to rule over their husbands. That's what the desire for their husbands has to mean. No, women desire their husbands. I mean, that's just the way it is. From little girls, we, we can be picking out the wedding dress and designing the, the ceremony. It's part of our innate being. We want to be married. We tell stories that, that appeal to that aspect of women. Uh, and so we desire our husbands, but the problem is sometimes we put him in the wrong place. We, we act as if a husband is supposed to fix everything. You know, Prince Charming, we get married, it's happily ever after, right? I, he's supposed to save us from everything, kill the dragons, you know, save us from scrubbing floors, all of that stuff. And these stories, I think, are supposed to point us back to no one's ever going to do these things for us. No one can save us except for God. And as women, we need to remember that. We need to remember that we shouldn't put an undue burden on the men in our lives. Um, I, I see a lot of women who get really embittered towards men when they are unable to be God, when they don't have God-like authority and God-like ability. And, um, well, un- unfortunately, there's enough leaders out there who are preaching that, you know, the, the husband is supposed to be the priest and intercessor for their, you know, for their wives and family. Now we should be praying for our families and we should, you know, be, be working to, to, you know, invest in their spiritual growth. But there, there are some who go as far to say that as, you know, as far as the women and children are concerned, the husband is supposed to be their Jesus. Yeah. I mean, there, and so, yeah, that it's no wonder that people are, are getting confused about this stuff because there's, there's people, there are people out there saying these things. Yeah. Oh, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. You know what rules over you? The thing that you desire, the, th- the desire that you put ahead of anything else. You want God to rule over you? Change your desire. God isn't saying this is what you're supposed to do. He says this is what's going to happen. This is what you fight against. I mean, and not to get too far afield, but you know, it's really funny to me that if a woman says, you know what, I'm going to desire God above my husband. Oh, my goodness. She's rebellious. She's Jezebel. You need to burn her at the stake or stone her, whatever. But then we say, oh, well, you know, God says that men are going to have to you know, work the ground and till the soil and, and get their food by the sweat of their brow and the thorns and the thistles are going to be part of the, the landscape and what he's going to have to fight against. And they celebrate a man who fights against those conditions, who actually contends against those conditions to bring about the ability to provide food. But women are supposed to accept the conditions. So, you know, if we're going to be consistent, then we have to make provision for women to say, okay, this is, this is the natural tendency now. This is the natural consequence, but this is not where I'm supposed to be. Where mankind, you know, if we want to be very literal, why, why are men working in offices? Uh, why are men uh, not, why is every man not out in a field growing food for his family? So, you know, we, we, we make allowances. We are inconsistent with our arguments. And I didn't mean to get off on that, but uh, I've been dealing with women's issues this morning. So my brain's kind of there. But in this circumstance, um, 
you know, David was either unwilling or unable to protect his wives. And because he didn't protect his wives, this is what allows Absalom to, to have this violence, commit these violence acts against these women. Now, Ahithophel gives his reasoning for this course of action. Uh, like I said, one is to, to break off this relationship with David. I mean, I don't know any quicker way to break off a relationship with any family member aside from sleeping with her spouse. That kind of uh, does some irreversible damage. Yeah. Yeah. And the second reason is that this dramatic defiance of David, of convention, of social norms, is going to strengthen the hand of everyone who's with Absalom. So they're going to be even more fully committed to Absalom because he's dared to rise up and he's dared to be bold. And this is going to inspire his followers to revolt. Now, this advice seems to suggest that there is at least some section of the population that just can't wait for David to be dethroned. And we've already seen some evidence of that with Shimmy. But the idea that David would be dethroned and replaced by his son would not be the most favorable idea. Um, so in order for them to accept Absalom as someone different, Absalom's going to have to prove that he's different. So what way to prove he's different, better way to prove he's different than his father? Well, supposedly, this is how warped and twisted the logic is. Supposedly, it's by breaking the Torah. It's by breaking those commands. And what's really... Mm -hmm really weird about this but it's also very true and it's repeated so many times in so many situations in his anger and resentment for his father for failing to protect Tamar against the violence that Amnon committed against her Absalom now becomes what he hates mm -hmm. and you know it, it's very much the, the Nietzsche you know you stare into the abyss the abyss stares into, stares into you and, you know, we have to be careful what we hate, because so often what we hate, we will become. And, and this is exactly what's happening with Absalom. He, he is becoming his father, even as he's trying to distance himself from his father. And so we are seeing, once again, how Absalom is becoming something that he's not. He's, he's not the guy we admired at, at, when he was introduced to us. He's not the guy we rooted for, and we hoped that he could, you know, follow in his father's footsteps. Now we realize he, he's not any different. And in fact, his bitterness and rage over the break in relationship with his father has actually made him more dangerous and, mm -hmm. and worse. And so he's he's no longer the protector of the defenseless. He he's the one that the defenseless need to be protected from. So verse twenty two. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. So um, in order for Ahithophel's uh, advice to be effective, it can't be carried out in secret. It can't be carried out in, pub in private. It has to be more than a rumor. It has to be undeniable fact in the faces of all the people. And so there, there's this very public aspect of it. Now, there's, it's no accident that this happens on a roof. If we go back to where all of this began, which was not Amnon and Tamar, it was David and Bathsheba. That mm -hmm. story opens. Where was David? On the roof. 
Yeah. Now I am curious. Um, is this does this uh, echo any kind of other type of pagan ritual uh, practices uh, with the pitching the tent and all that? I don't know about. Or did you necessarily... have time to look into it? I don't know if it's necessarily about pitching the tent, but it definitely taking the brides, it, it goes back to, to pagan ritual. And I mean, that, that's just part of, you know, conquering another territory is you take the women. And so, uh, and the women would sometimes be put into service of foreign gods. Uh, if we go back to Genesis 6, then we can look at the sons of God taking the daughters of men. Uh, which really puts a whole new spin on um, Absalom's perspective of himself. And uh, we, we already talked about with David and Bathsheba how he was emulating those sons of God. And, you know, this was his darkest point in his reign. So it does play into to that kind of overall mythology that is so common. I mean, it's so common that we have memes about Zeus. Um, you know, Zeus was all over anything he could get a hold of. Uh, that was, that was, you know, it's a big joke now about Greek mythology. And that was right. Zeus's full-time job. Um, and, the, and, of course, the priests and the kings of these different gods, they would act like these different gods, which involved, you know, taking the women. So uh, I don't know, like I said, about necessarily pitching the tent. Uh, that may have been done just to preserve a little bit of dignity, whether for the women or for Absalom. We aren't told. Um, that would be interesting to know. We also aren't told the time span. We know there's 10 concubines. Um, and I've heard a lot of questions. I've read a lot of questions about, uh, you know, what length of time uh, this sleeping with 10 concubines took, whether it was 10 days or 10 minutes. Again, we don't know. Uh, I'm not even going to try to answer those questions for anyone because somebody's asking them, I guarantee you. But <laughs> it seems like kind of a superfluous detail, but whatever. Yeah. 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 It, it, that's the thing. We we know that it was public enough for people to know what's going on, but it seems like it was uh, hidden enough uh, that there all the details aren't known. But we should also be expecting this. Uh, if we go back to Second Samuel twelve eleven through twelve, Nathan says, "Thus says the Lord: Behold, I will raise up against, raise up evil against you out of your own house." And I will take your, um, take your eyes and, sorry, take your eyes and give to your neighbor. Take your wives and give to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the, before the sun. Absalom literally word for word fulfills this. And so he is the fulfillment of Nathan's prophecy against David for what David did to Bathsheba. Absalom is the neighbor. Uh, it's interesting that this word for neighbor in 2 Samuel 12 is the same word that Absalom used for Hushai. And so the, the, um, Hushai actually now becomes the neighbor to Absalom while Absalom is the neighbor to David. And David was the neighbor to, um, to Saul later on. Uh, Mordecai is going to be the, the neighbor of Haman. So it's very, no, sorry, Esther's going to become the neighbor of um, the queen there. I forget what her name is. But anyway, uh, it's, it's the same word, and, and it's always with this idea of replacement. So this is your, your tip-off. 
that Hushai is actually going to replace Ahithophel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so um, the, the break with the father it should not be completely unexpected either because Absalom has been presented as a Nazarite. And we talked about this in a previous episode. But we don't know if he's a Nazarite in reality. But he's definitely presented with the same kind of Nazarite themes. And we've got the long hair. We've got the burning fields, just like Samson burned the fields of the Philistines. And the expectation of a Nazarite is that they are the ultimate outsider. That they are so much of an outsider that they don't even have parents. And that's reflected in the, the command that if, you have an, if you're under a Nazarite vow, that you don't even bury your dead parents. That you have renounced belonging to the community to the point that you can't even grieve over their death. You can't go to their funeral. And so Absalom is being portrayed as an outsider from the get-go, and now we're seeing this carried out. We're seeing it fulfilled and manifest through his actions to make sure that now everybody knows that Absalom has rejected David as his father. And it kind of mirrors when David rejected Saul as his father. Because, yes, Saul wasn't his biological father, but Saul was his father-in-law. And when he married Michal, if they would have had a child, that child would have been the natural successor to the throne. And it would have united both households. And there would have, wouldn't have been this break. It could have just been this natural fulfillment. But remember when Michal ridiculed David for dancing before the ark, at that point, David's done. I, I don't even have to deal with you as a wife anymore. And she doesn't have any children because evidently they were never intimate again. And so there's this really weird inversion of roles. And so David's become Saul in this moment and Absalom has become David. And I think one of the things that's showing us is that in many ways, David really isn't much better than Saul and Absalom really isn't any worse than David. Because the problem in the Bible, the problem that's consistently revealed in the Bible, is that when people rise to power, everyone's dangerous. Mm. Power has the, 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 the ability to corrupt even the best of people. And so none of them, Saul, David, Absalom, none of them are better than the other apart from two things, and that is David has the ability to examine his actions, and he can perceive how he's violated God's word, and he owns the damage that he's done to his relationship with God, and he, he understands that it wounds God's heart, that this is not some kind of abstract, oh, I did wrong, and the universe might be out of kilter. No, that God is a person. God is a real being an individual with the ability to be hurt. And so David, when he is accused of hurting this relationship, of hurting God's heart, he doesn't excuse or justify what he did. He, he does what is right. He, he, he actually does the correct thing. He doesn't say, I'm the king. I can do whatever I want to, and no one has the right to stop me. He says, God is the king, and I need to honor him. And this is why he can repent and he can turn back to God and away from what he did. And he can you know, respond to his sin in an appropriate manner. Saul and Absalom, ne- ne- neither one do this. And 
I think it points us to the need for the true king. It points us to the need for the real Messiah, which is Jesus, of course. And, you know, and it, it serves as kind of a cautionary tale that all of us, uh, we're capable of these things. If we are not careful, if we're not guarding our hearts, then given the opportunity, would we be any better than Saul? Would we do any better than David or Absalom? Or are we all kind of just at the mercy of our baser instincts and appetites? And that's, that's what I think we're seeing in this story because we do have those blurring of roles. And, you know, it's, it, it's an important thing that we, we acknowledge that the Bible doesn't present David as being infallible or perfect. Mm-hmm. And because so often, I was actually speaking to somebody uh, earlier this week about the story about um, Gideon and his fleece and whether or not it was justifiable for Christians to put out a fleece and how they'd always heard that that was a great thing. That was a wonderful thing. And we got into this big discussion. And if you've listened to our series on judges, then you know that the judges were all flawed. Nobody in the Bible is perfect. And I know we keep harping on that, but I think so often we as Christians, we've been taught, oh, these are great heroes of faith, and we try to emulate things about them that we shouldn't, and we end up actually falling into greater sin than if we would just do what God told us to do. <laughs> so, Right. I, I, it's, it seems so simple, but it's never easy. But chap, uh, verse 23, the conclusion, which is a little, little commentary from the writer of Samuel. He says, now in those days, the council of Ahithophel was gave, the, sorry, the council that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. And so was all the council of Ahithophel esteemed by both David and by Absalom. So this, this almost seems like almost a throwaway line. It's like it doesn't really have anything to do with the story itself. Um, but it's really important because think about it for just a minute. What this is saying is almost giving Ahithophel prophetic status. You know, it's as if one consulted the word of God. And so this makes it very important for us to realize that this guy, he has something that is so on, so on point, so right that people would listen to him because they, they really didn't even have to go any further. They didn't need to go seek a prophet. They could just go to this guy because he was wise. And we need to know that because he's going to do something really crazy in the next chapter that's going to just blow people's minds. But it sets us up to be surprised by what happens next because we, we realize David was right to send this agent of influence in the form of uh, Hushai. Um, it should really kind of shock us that Absalom's willing to accept Hushai's advice over Ahithophel's. And we're going to see how this is what ultimately saves David from Ahithophel because Ahithophel is out for blood. And I think that's where we see his wisdom get corrupted. His wisdom which had been so reliable and so highly esteemed, gets twisted when he allows vengeance and hate to be his motivating factors. And again, makes perfect, perfect sense if we realize that Bathsheba is his granddaughter. 
And so I, I just, I find it very, very interesting that these are things that a lot of times aren't brought out when we tell a story. So, and I, I should clarify, Ahithophel is never called a prophet in the Bible. Uh, but it's just that he's given this kind of, you know, um, comparable clout and status, at least in the eyes of David and Absalom. And you would presume that if David and Absalom felt this way about him, then the rest of the kingdom would have followed, um, followed suit. And the other thing that I think it kind of comes into play here is if David esteemed him so highly, if David valued his advice to the level that we're, we're being told that David did, then you can understand why Ahithophel might feel so betrayed. Because you would assume that if a king is going to give you personal favors as an individual, that those kinds of personal favors would extend to your family and household. And so this isn't just David grabbed a girl walking down the street in Jerusalem because he saw her. This is the granddaughter of one of his most trusted advisors and friends. And especially if we go back to Psalms and we talk about, um, was it Psalm 3, where you know, we walked in the house of the Lord together? We mm-hmm. shared counsel, you, calling this guy an intimate friend. If we believe that's who David was talking about, oh my goodness. The level of betrayal, how insulting and how hurtful that would be, would explain everything that's getting ready to unfold in chapter 17. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of all I've got on this chapter. And since we're getting pretty close to time here. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, uh, there's, I mean, that was a lot of information. So, <laughs> and a, we went through it pretty quick, but I'm yeah, still hyped up from today. Oh, I know. <laughs> But yeah, I mean that's a good a place to to kind of break there. Um, you know, well, we generally try to keep it at an hour. We tend to go, you know, about an hour five, an hour seven mostly. But um, we usually have a lot to say. <laughs> what and what you're missing out on on this side because uh, we don't we aren't doing a video call, so I can't see you. You can't see me right now. Like I have been sitting on this couch so long this morning, I'm having to like rearrange myself. So like my knees are in the shot every so often. So. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Congratulations, guys. Oh. You got to see my knees. <laughs> well, that being said, everyone, thanks for joining us. Uh, hope you had a good time. <laughs> and uh, we uh, and hopefully learned something. Um, I, I know I'm learning all kinds of things through these discussions. And hopefully you enjoy it. Um, join us next week to be part of the conversation. In the meantime, hit us up on the website, Raven Creek SC or Raven Creek SC on all the social media. And in the meantime, we will see you next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.